Welcome to Gladiatrix. I am woman and hear me roar. I'm your host, Malini Sarma. Every week, I will be speaking with women from all over the world who will be sharing their journeys, their stories about overcoming their fears and achieving great things that they thought they never could. So if you don't want to miss a story, make sure you subscribe. Before we talk about today's show, I would like to say thank you to all my guests who have been featured on the Gladiatrix podcast to date. I have a dream. There are 193 countries in the United Nations, and I have a dream that I can host at least one woman from every country in the world on this podcast. That is 193 countries, 193 stories, and 193 shows. So if you know of somebody who should be featured on the show, please drop me a note. I would really appreciate it. Before I introduce today's speaker, I would like to talk about the country that I was born and brought up in, the country of India. India is one of the most populous countries in the world and gained independence from the British in 1947 after almost 200 years. At the time of independence, India was divided into 28 states. Unlike the United States, where the land is divided by the size, in India, the land is divided by the language. Today, there are 22 official languages and 29 states. Traveling from one state to another is almost like traveling to a completely different country because each state has its own language, has its own dress, and even has its own type of food. 80% of the Indians are Hindus, 13% are Muslims, and less than 3% are Christians. There are also Buddhists, Sikhs, Jains, and Jews living in India. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Smriti Lamak. Smriti was brought up in the city of Allahabad, which is in the state of Uttar Pradesh, one of the largest states in India, which is predominantly Hindu. What is interesting is Smriti is Christian, but surrounded with strong role models and educators, not once did Smriti feel any different. She continues to speak her truth and march the tune of her own drum. This is her story. Hi, Smriti. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast today. I'm really excited for everybody to hear your story because yours is a very unconventional one. Hi, Malini. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. So um, you have had quite, an, uh, for most people, I guess they wouldn't think it is unconventional childhood, but, uh, or in your case, you don't think it's unconventional, but for most people who are on the outside, you were um, born, brought up in Allahabad, which is a predominantly um, Hindu uh, culture, you know, neighborhood, but you were born, um, born and brought up Christian and you went to Catholic school and your parents had a huge, and your grandparents had a huge influence on your life, correct? 
So That's do you right. want to talk a little bit about how, you know, some of those experiences shaped your upbringing? Uh, yes, admittedly, I had a very unconventional life. And uh, I think like most of us, when it's your lived experience, um, when you're living it and you're in it, you don't realize how unconventional it is. Mm-hmm. Um, not only was ours a Christian family, is ours a Christian family. It is also a family where a lot of cultures have uh, intermarried. So, you know, um, it's a Bengali Christian married to uh, a Gadwali Christian. Mm-hmm. and uh, their child married to a Tamilian Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a Chinese Christian ancestry, mm-hmm. ancestors, sorry. And um, so, you know, uh, we, there were Christian girls in school, but even they just came from a UP Christian family. Even they mm-hmm. didn't have the kind of mm-hmm. mixed background that I had. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think the first question that I used to be asked was, what is your caste? And mm-hmm. um, I, didn't, I didn't know what a caste was. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second question was, um, what language do you speak at home? Mm-hmm. And uh, we spoke so many languages at home. Every every single person was speaking a different language to somebody else. It was almost like the Tower of Babel at times. <laughs> so, uh, so that was the second unconventional thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the third is that ours is a, a mostly matriarchal family uh, without really meaning to be. Mm-hmm. In each case, um, our family home in Allahabad uh, has been uh, with us for four generations. It's more than a hundred years old. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandmother, um, my grandfather married my grandmother and moved into her home because she was the youngest daughter. And she said, I, um, she got married to him on the condition that she never had to leave. That's her old awesome. Parents alone. <laughs> that yeah. is so awesome. And, um, <laughs> so, um, she, um, you know, uh, he actually quit his job and he'd, he'd been in love with her for years. Um, mm-hmm. He was like a national level football player, this, that, and he quit all of that and took up a teaching job because he wanted to stay stable and steady in Allahabad with my grandmother. Mm-hmm. Similarly, my father got married and moved uh, to Allahabad with my mom uh, mm-hmm. and they set up businesses over there. I mean, it, it was just coincidence. It was, there was no, there was nothing more to it, but it, right. coincidentally, these have been strong women with strong ideas. And um, that is again, something that Allahabad had never seen. And, you know, everybody would be, Amazed if I said that this is my nani's house because mm-hmm. they kind of assumed it was, you know, yeah, it was yeah. my daddy's house. Right, right. So that, um, I think perhaps one of the craziest things was that my grandmother was an artist. She was a, she was a school principal. She ran some of the earliest schools there. Mm-hmm. But she was also an artist and she used to paint nudes. Mm-hmm. And so I'd have school friends trickling in and seeing this elderly lady painting nudes. <laughs> and it would freak them out. <laughs> They'd never seen a nude in their life, let alone one gentle sweet old lady uh, painting them so yeah so that's some of it that that's that's pretty crazy i mean even for i think even for now i think that is a that's pretty wild right so that's not something that you would normally see but your mother and your grandmother had a huge influence on you not you and like you said you didn't even uh it wasn't planned or anything it just so happened that you were surrounded by strong women so you said your mom is very enterprising and she runs a lot of businesses. Do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, how their personality and how they, what they did, how that shaped your thinking and what you wanted to do when you grew up? So um, interestingly, um, both of them on the face of it uh, have always been fairly timid women. Uh, you know, you walk into a home where there is a housewife and a matriarch of the family who runs the place and perhaps only runs the house and runs, 
you know, mm-hmm. makes decisions regarding who's going to marry who and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Those are the kind of things that my mother and grandmother could never do and were constantly bulldozed over by, you know, mm-hmm. by in-laws and by other people. They, mm-hmm. they would, um, they'd, they were just not the sort of women who were very strong, um, or who held strong opinions about how a home should be run or how families should function. Mm-hmm. They just had some very strong ideas about how they wanted to live their own lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that itself um, was remarkable for the time and age that they came from. You know, they didn't mm-hmm. care what was being cooked. And mm-hmm. we've, I, we've always had a cook in the family. And, you know, my grandmother would walk into the house and ask the cook, what's for dinner? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. which, which was rare, but, but that's how it was. If you, if you have asked her what was for dinner, she'd look at you blankly because she had no clue herself. <laughs> um, so, you know, my, my mother grew up with a working mother. Mm-hmm. And then my mother was a working mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, my husband calls her a serial entrepreneur because she just keeps going. She'll mm-hmm. run something for a couple of years and, um, you know, it'll be a huge success and then she'll spin it off, sell it off and, uh, start something else. Mm-hmm. And, and she really, she really likes the thrill of the hunt, I'd say, mm-hmm. because once, you know, a business puts, uh, gets, you know, puts its roots in and kind of gets settled and stabilized. Mm-hmm. She loses interest and sells it off and starts something new, something mm-hmm. that, you know, demands all her time and energy. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, I always, I've, I've, I've never, perhaps the one thing I've learned from them is not to fear the unknown. Yeah. And that's, that's huge. I mean, cause even in today's world about just, you know, look at the current situation with COVID and everything, nobody really knows what's going on. I right. think that is a, that is a really, uh, um, what do you call it, a characteristic that, I think a lot of people could learn about not fearing the unknown. Yeah, so. absolutely. I mean, tomorrow was always something to look forward to, never something to fear, no matter how big a risk you were taking. And that's led to a lot of slips and falls and, and you know, that's mm-hmm. part of life. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've never feared that because of them. And mm-hmm. especially because they were women in UP. I mean, you have to put this in perspective. They were women in UP doing these things. Yeah, I mean... I'm just, I'm just, uh, you know, when I first heard your story, I was like, this is so cool. I mean, we're, you've t- I mean, women even now standing up to say something is like, it's such a big deal. Right. And I mean, it, we're talking about like two generations of women who have, you know, stood up to everything and being so unconventional. I think that's just, that's just like badass in itself. <laughs> so. oh, yeah. My grandmother. Um, so now I realize that perhaps it's somewhat cultural because Bengalis put a lot of uh, value on education mm-hmm. and my grandmother was Bengali mm-hmm. um, all her she had uh, three sisters and a brother and all her sisters were very very well educated mm-hmm. um, one was a principal of, of Christ College in uh, Jabalpur mm-hmm. the other one was the directress of education um, another one uh, actually trained under Elizabeth Arden wow and mm-hmm. uh, used to uh, used to work with British Airways at a time when you know she should help the air hostesses with their makeup and their mm-hmm. grooming and all of that Mm-hmm. And I'm, again, these are my grandmother's sisters. So you can imagine this yeah. happened in the fifties and stuff. Yeah. And they'd all, they were all these small town Allahabad girls. Uh, so, yeah. So you come from a family of badass women. And I think that is so cool. <laughs> so. I, I have, I don't think I'm ever going to match up to them, but yeah. <laughs> so you, I mean, so, so your, your mom was a serial entrepreneur and your, your grandmother was um, principal of a school so when you, uh, growing up, did you already know what you were going to do? I mean, okay. did that, you know, like, okay, I'm also going to be a business person or I'm also going to go into education or was it like, oh no, I'm definitely not going to do that. What was, what was your mind like at that time? 
So um, my grandmother was very keen that I should either join the IAS. Uh, she had cleared the civil services, you know, in uh, pre-independence uh, days. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then she didn't want to leave her parents and travel because it is a sort of a transferable role. So she mm-hmm. quit for that. So she had a dream that she wanted me to fulfill. So I was raised being told that you have to, you know, sit for the civil services and become an IAS officer. Mm-hmm. At some point, my grandmother realized I was very argumentative and said, <laughs> maybe you should do law. and um, but towards the end of school I realized I was contributing to the school magazine writing you know incessantly Mm -hmm. I was constantly writing short stories and stuff Mm -hmm. and um, finally um, between us the whole family realized and I realized that journalism is where I should uh, be headed Mm -hmm. and um, so I went on to do English honors and then I did my uh, a postgraduate course in mass communication and journalism from uh, the Xavier Institute of Communications in Bombay. Mm-hmm. But um, that wasn't the plan until I'm, I'm sure it wasn't the plan until class 10. I was quite sure I was either going to sit for my civil services or be a lawyer. So I mm-hmm. mean, that plan itself kept changing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, in between all of this, I knew I wanted to travel. I mean, I've always loved adventure. I love travel. Mm-hmm. And I made the mistake of thinking that um, that I could be an air hostess. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I had uh, everything else they needed, but the attitude and the temperament for it. <laughs> so I went through my entire training. I aced every test that they took. Um, in fact, I remember on the last day, I got 100 on a paper and... Uh, one of the seniors, the person testing me said, I'm going to have to cut one mark because it's unheard of. We've never given people a hundred mm-hmm. and um, it, it's going to look like there's something fishy here. Mm-hmm. So she gave me a 99 on that paper mm-hmm. and I started flying and within one and a half days, mm-hmm. I quit. So <laughs> that was the first uh, career that I went through and, and I went through that one like a hot knife through butter. It was over before I knew. So, and, and the reason you quit was because you were like, you just didn't have the patience to put up with, you know, everything that you were taught or uh, trained to put up with? You know, my family currently runs two hospitality businesses. So um, I have all the patience um, in the world to be uh, in hospitality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, in fact, I was so drawn to it that I've even done a little stint with the Taj hotels. Mm-hmm. That was also, that also lasted five days. Mm-hmm. And I, in retrospect, I realized it isn't the hospitality that put me off. It was the structure that put me off. Uh-huh. I just, uh, you know, the, I, I understand that when you run large organizations, there has to be a structure in place. Otherwise, there's no way to manage, uh, mm-hmm. you know, something mm-hmm. of that at that scale. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the, I find being in a uniform very, um, I find it restrictive. And I also find it at some level very demeaning. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I cannot stand the idea of a uniform. I cannot stand, you know, we, we were told which color lipsticks we were allowed to use. I was given one nail polish and told that's all I'm allowed to, you know, for my entire working career, mm-hmm. my, you know, my entire working life, that's the only color I'm allowed to use. Mm-hmm. And I found all of that pointless. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't see what it had to do with the job at hand. Mm-hmm. And I found the focus on those kind of trivial, silly little things. Um, I found, again, I found that also ridiculous and unreasonable. Mm-hmm. And uh, they made me so unhappy that mm-hmm. it didn't matter that the job by itself was something that I was, I might have enjoyed otherwise. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, the structure around it was just, just too rigid, uh, almost dehumanizing, you mm-hmm. know. I, I, yeah, I, I think I'll settle with that word. <laughs> so you went from mass communication, you decided, you know, you did hospitality for a while. And what happened after you quit? 
um, you know, working as a, as a stewardess, what happens after uh, that? So I also did, uh, so while I was doing my, um, my post-graduation, um, I was in Bombay and, and I earned my pocket money and put myself through college uh, to some extent by, by doing a couple of modeling stints. They weren't very big deals. They were like, you know, I was like one of those chorus girls dancing in the background of a video. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've done hand modeling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you have, um, you, you, when, you folk, when, when you zoom in on a hand in a mm-hmm. video, uh-huh. that is very rare. And the actual hand of the model, it's somebody else who has pretty hands. Ooh, okay. So I did that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, there is such a career to be had. <laughs> <laughs> and you can actually make a career of it because it pays very well. Oh, okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah you can. Uh, so I did all of that, put myself through college. I have uh, hosted events. I've, yeah, I've been an MC at events. Mm-hmm. And, um, but eventually I did get into journalism. I was with uh, TV. Uh, mm-hmm. I joined business television. I've been a reporter and a producer. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, that, I, I mean, that was perhaps the longest stint that I've ever done something. Mm-hmm. Uh, about four years ago, I shifted focus, um, Mm. which was partly led by uh, motherhood, I think, because Mm. it's only after I had my own kids that I started focusing on education, Mm -hmm. um, the the idea behind education, what is the pedagogy, Mm -hmm. why are we doing what we are doing, Mm -hmm. Uh, is this actually a a valid way to to lead life? Because I mean, for us, we just look at it as education, but a child who's being educated, it is their entire life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, your day. Your, your life for a child their, child, their life revolves around education. So when you choose a way to educate your child, you're not just choosing their education, you're defining their life mm-hmm. for those years or whatever. Mm-hmm. So um, all of that got me very interested, reading up, researching. And about four years ago, I, um, <clears throat> I took the CELTA uh, certification. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, am, I have a Cambridge certificate to treat, teach English as a foreign language to adults. Okay. Um, and um, after that, in fact, I ran a business of my own, a franchise of an American um, after-school program. It's called the JEI Learning Program. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, we teach children uh, between 4 and 14 uh, maths and English. Okay. But, uh, you know, it's not a very rigid program, and that's what appealed to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you actually test children, see what their learning requirements are, and customize mm-hmm. every single child's program. So it's a l- immensely hard work. Right. Because unlike a classroom system where you teach a particular chapter today mm-hmm. or a topic today, mm-hmm. you would have a class of five, eight children and mm-hmm. every single one of them is at a different level learning a different topic. Right. So it's incredibly challenging, great fun, but mm-hmm. I closed that down last year. Oh, okay. So I'm sure your, your grandmother, um, you know, she was here, she would be very proud of you because you literally came right back to education, which, you know, wh- where, what you were exposed to right from the beginning, right? All Christians come back to education or nursing. <laughs> I didn't realize that though. You know, even I went to Catholic school, but I didn't realize that. But yeah, I guess you could say that. In, in India, the Christians all come back to nursing. And you know, every Christian girl grows up saying, I will not be a teacher because almost every other, you know, Christian mm-hmm. uh, family has, you know, teachers in it. And I, I just swore I would never be a teacher, but I couldn't help it. It just literally sucked me in yeah uh, yeah see I'm, I'm, I'm i was a teacher too so i can see the um the appeal you know the the freedom you have to teach the students and the joy you get from seeing the, the difference when you've made a difference i think that's that's what's uh, that's what kind of drags me into that too so um so while you you know you you're going back to your career you were you're in, in journalism and you were working in tv and, and you were producing also because that gave you the freedom, you know, to do uh, 
to kind of spread your wings and get your point out there. But um, in, in all this, while you were going through this, you also met your husband, right? And I, I know there was a lot of drama that happened, but, you know, um, when he by the time he finally became your husband, you want to talk a little bit about that story? Yeah. <laughs> so we have a family tradition of, uh, of the boy's family saying no, or at least the boy's family being less interested, which I, I don't know. It's almost like they instinctively know this is a family of very strong women. So well, while that is never the objection, the objection is always something else. Uh, but it's almost like, you know, sixth sense warning them off our family. <laughs> <I'd say. laughs> you know, in, um, in UP and in, in Hindi, there's a phrase where you say, Ladki bhaga le gaya, that the boy took the girl and ran away with her, eloped with her. Uh-huh. In our case, it's always been us eloping with the boy. Oh, okay. And so my husband was bhagaoed by me. Um, <laughs> is how it would look, I suppose, because he came back to my place and we got married there. Um, okay, so you so kept yeah, with the tradition. Husband. So you kept with the tradition of, you know, in the girl's house. So, yeah. My daughter keeps telling me there is so much pressure to find a boy I can pick up under my arm and run with. So, <laughs> so yeah. So when you first um, so met yeah, him. You... Sorry? No, go ahead. So you said you first met him when you were in college? No, at work. Okay. In fact, I was at work. I was dating somebody else. And I really liked my husband. I thought he was a very nice person. I just didn't think he was for me because he was just such a nice guy that I thought he deserved better. Mm-hmm. And um, I set him up with a number of my friends, which is which is like uh, an old joke. People can't stop laughing about the number of double dates I've been on with him because I keep setting him up with one good friend or the other and nothing would work out, you know. And, mm-hmm. and he'd come out with my boyfriend and me. And then finally, when my boyfriend and I broke up for various reasons, mm-hmm. I remember him telling me, yeah, I am so tired of you setting me up with other women when I wanted to be with you. <laughs> and uh, you just wouldn't take the hint. <laughs> and he'd just come along, you know, for the heck of it because he was spending time with me. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, I mean, we started dating um, when we were at work. Mm-hmm. And uh, my husband is a Brahmin. Mm-hmm. And he comes from a family that doesn't see any intermarriage mm. and, you know, is very, very proud of their culture and uh, their language and their food. And they're very particular that that should be preserved. Mm-hmm. And um, so my husband had a, had a huge battle mm-hmm. to marry me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it went on for a couple of years. He actually, after, you know, he took some time out. He went on to do an MBA. Over those years, we fought. My parents and his parents met. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for my parents to talk to his parents and see if they could reason with them that, you know, if, if that's what the kids want to do, if, if, you know, our children, they're adults, if they want to get married, mm-hmm. we should support them. But uh, they were, my in-laws were very, very steadfast in their belief that they did not want a Christian daughter-in-law mm-hmm. and that this marriage would not work out. I mean, they, they said that we don't see it um, as viable. We cannot see our son happy in this situation. He hasn't mm-hmm thought this through mm-hmm. and if he gave it any thought he'd realize that uh, you know it's very difficult to live with somebody from another culture mm-hmm. and we didn't see it that way obviously because my entire family is full of a variety of cultures and, mm-hmm. and we think it's variety is the spice of life you know mm-hmm. so uh, personally I, I um, so it, it, there's a little anecdote that um, some years ago my son when he started school um, he came back home one day and he said mama there's a new boy in my class and it's such a coincidence, both his parents are Punjabis. <laughs> and, you know, he had never met, even amongst our friends, he had never met a couple, a husband and wife from the same community in all those years. So the first time he met somebody 
you know, from the same community. He thought it was, it was an amazing coincidence. He didn't realize that there was such a thing as an arranged marriage or, you know, people wow. marrying within their community. So I was just, I told my husband, I said, we've really messed the kids up for life. <laughs> Now, you, you did say, you had mentioned that when you guys were talking about, you know, finally, when your parents agreed, your mom had told you, um, you know, she, she kind of gave you a very interesting perspective about marriage. Yes. So, uh, yeah. So interestingly, uh, my parents had no objection to my um, boyfriend at that point. They came mm-hmm. and met my, uh, met my husband, Rajiv. Mm-hmm. Before we, the moment I said that there is this guy and, you know, I spend a lot of time with him. Uh, my mom kept insisting. She said, this guy is interested in you. This is at the point that I still hadn't realized. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I really read my mom, the, uh, the riot act. And I said, you have no understanding of platonic relationships. <laughs> you know, stop misunderstanding every relationship. And, you know, I'm not interested and we're just friends and this and that. So my mom came, visited me mm-hmm. at work mm-hmm. and uh, asked to meet him and said, why don't you have him drop by? And, you know, you spend so much time with him. I'd like to say hi to him. And she met him and all. And when she went back, she told my dad, she said, uh, he's definitely in love with her. She can't see it. Mm-hmm. And um, by the time I realized, and my husband actually did ask me out and stuff, and I called my mom. She was so validated and so, <laughs> so she she was so I told you so. Mm-hmm. And uh, then at that point, she said that you know he's a lovely boy and we really like him and all. But our only objection, to, my only objection to this is that he's very career minded and so are you. Mm-hmm. And I don't see that as working out. I I think relationships where there are opposites, mm-hmm. uh, you know. So we we don't see. Um, we see it as um, we see it as a disadvantage that the boy is so driven and so ambitious because we we have raised our investment in this is you you are mm-hmm. our child mm-hmm. we have spent all these years giving you an education encouraging you uh, to further your you know personal mm-hmm. development mm-hmm. and you'll end up being married to somebody who comes from a conservative family mm-hmm. and who won't support your career you know mm-hmm. not only is his family conservative but he himself is very driven and career minded and um, there will be no room for you, for your wings to, you know, for you mm-hmm. to spread your wings. Mm-hmm. So um, even, I mean, for the first couple of years, I did move a lot with my husband and, you know, he had, he just finished his, uh, um, his business degree and he just started work again. Mm-hmm. So he needed that little bit of a leg up. And every time I told my mom, we're moving, <laughs> we're moving cities or we're moving house or my husband's moving jobs and, you know, I need to move with him. She'd say, I told you, you're never going to get, get a career. You're never going to be, be able to build a career at this rate. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, she had a point. So, so then what happened? I mean, so you, you guys got married and then you were work, you were kind of following him and you were working on the side while he was doing his thing. Yes. So we got married um, and I continued with media, but you know, the thing with being a journalist is that you're only as good as your sources mm-hmm. and as the stories as, as well as, you know, a place. I mean, it's very difficult for a journalist uh, to build sources and to build trust and to build connections if they keep moving. You, know, mm-hmm. you need your network to get, I mean, there are always the stories that you will get on a platter, mm-hmm. the PR stories. Mm-hmm. But if you want to dig for something that is unusual, that is different, uh, you need to belong to a place and you need to build that network. Mm-hmm. And I found that very difficult to do. And then uh, anyway, I was very, very keen on having kids. I've wanted kids ever since I was 10 or 14 or something. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I decided to have children. Mm-hmm. And uh, put my career slightly on the hold, mm-hmm. on the back burner for a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I worked. I went back to work when my son was two and in fact, uh, two months old, frankly, not even two years, two mm-hmm. months old. Mm-hmm. And I went back to work when my daughter was eight days old. Wow. So you, did you I have really help? I mean, how did you manage with having two young kids at home? Why are you working from uh, home or your husband or do you have nanny? How did that work? Are your parents helped out? I had a nanny. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, my son, I didn't have a nanny. I used to just wear him in a sling and go uh, go out and report and shoot. And mm-hmm. he's my son's been on all kind of sets. He's been he's traveled everywhere in autos and trains and mm-hmm. everything. He was an amazing baby. And and I, you know, babies. Um, I think they pick it up early. Mm-hmm. But he learned so young that Mama's career was important to her mm-hmm. in whatever form it was. Mm-hmm. Um, he he was just the most cooperative baby. Mm-hmm. Ever. In fact, I keep saying that my my younger one conned my my son conned me into having the second one because I believed that children were easy because he was just such an easy baby. Uh-huh. He, I would take him to a set for a shoot and I would just put him down on the ground and he would sit there quietly mm-hmm. for two hours while I interviewed somebody without a sound. I have never seen another baby do that. Mm-hmm. So and even now, uh, I mean, over the years as I work and I've worked mostly from home after that, mm-hmm. um, done a lot of you know tried until they went back to school. In which case, I would then have my shoots and my interviews in the morning while they were at school or mm-hmm. try and do it after my husband had come back from work so that they were never, I had a nanny. I had, I had house help. I didn't have nannies, but I had house help. Okay. Yeah. So um, I would try not to leave them with, you know, somebody who was not family. Right. Right. So that, that worked out really well, but you were also, I mean, and your kids are, are older now, but when, uh, as they were growing up, since you have such a passion for education, you were very convinced and you have, you were very clear like you were talking about how you wanted the kids to experience education because it has such a profound, um, it has such a profound impact on their psyche and as they grow up. So what was, what was that, that, um, you know, fight that you had or that argument that you had, that you want, or that you were so clear about how you wanted to raise your kids uh, and the education that they had? So I'll, I'll rephrase that for myself. It wasn't sure. the education. I'll come back. I'll, I'll say it again because I've, this is something that this clarity has only come to me in the last few years. It wasn't the education that I thought that was I wanted for them. It was, again, the life that I wanted for them. And I just felt, you know, there's that old Mark Twain one that, you know, um, something about education, school shouldn't get in the way of your real education or something right. to that effect. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I just felt that uh, you know we were gro- we were raising the children in south delhi um, we were surrounded by many many very rich very very spoiled entitled kids mm-hmm. uh, the kids went to very fancy schools where everything was handed to them on a platter and um, i i developed such a such a dislike for the kind of uh, environment we were raising them in mm-hmm. that it pushed me to clarify my own thoughts on what i wanted for them after that mm-hmm. you know the moment i st- i put them in a school i knew I may not have known what I wanted, but I was very clear about what I didn't want at that point. Okay. And, you know, their, their little school would teach them their first day of school. I remember my son was taught how to apply cheese on a cracker. Hmm. And, you know, that, that was just such a frou-frou um, entitled mm-hmm. thing to do. Mm-hmm. Everybody learns how to apply something on something eventually. Right. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it could have, they could have, if they just wanted to develop their motor skills, they could have taught them bread and butter. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the fact that they chose cheese and crackers really ticked me off. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted kids who were far more grounded. You have a lifetime of being arrogant. You have a lifetime of developing um, attitude mm-hmm. and, um, and learning to be, um, you know, cheeky. But, mm-hmm. uh, I, but if, you're, if, if we, we don't start with you being grounded, there is nowhere for us to go. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that came back to us many years later. We moved to Dubai. And uh, again, without, you know, we were strangers mm-hmm. and didn't really know anything over there. So we applied to a number of schools and, you know, our, uh, our criteria was very simple, a school that would take brother and sister together so that they didn't get split up. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I put them in the school and didn't realize it happened. It, it was an expensive school, uh, but I hadn't really thought that through. We didn't have enough information. Uh, it ended up being one of those schools which wanted, uh, you know, the end of this uh, end of the school year, end of the term party was uh, was going to be a social, and the kids had to wear um, a tux, and they had to come in uh, a stretch limo. Hmm. And uh, you know, it was ridiculous. I just I I couldn't see why a twelve year old had to experience a stretch limo, mm-hmm. and why that had to become part of your daily life. When uh, you know, stretch limo should be something that you can appreciate and something to aspire to, something right. very special that you, you, know, you take your you take your wife on your whatever your first mm-hmm. anniversary or something, mm-hmm. you know, your partner, something like that. It wasn't. I didn't see why a twelve year old who had no understanding. You know, you put them in a cab or you put them in a stretch limo. It's all the same. They just right. you know, it's all about just getting to your destination. Right. So um, that was pretty much what happened to me in their early stage also. And then I realized that I I started reading up on. Montessori on Waldorf on Krishnamurti and um, and then that then I was very very clear that this is exactly what I want for my children I want them to lead a simpler life I want them to lead, lead a more genuine life mm-hmm. and uh, and if I need them to lead a more genuine life then the, the the education has to prepare them for that the education has to be about that the education itself has to be genuine mm-hmm. it cannot be about numbers and uh, and formula it has to be about an education that helps you uh, think critically. I mean, that should be the focus, not mugging up things or learning by rote or, or being able to say that, oh, I know how to code. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't think that was important. Mm-hmm. So we moved, uh, I moved, that was one of the first moves I made for the children's education. We moved out of our Delhi home to Gurgaon, where I found a school that was fairly progressive, mm-hmm. didn't have a uniform, did, you know, children didn't have to um, carry a school bag, didn't have exams at the end of the year. And at the time that we did this, it was a fairly, um, it was a fairly brave decision to make because the school had only been around about a couple of years, two years or three years and nobody had heard of it. Mm-hmm. So everybody thought we were crazy moving them out of this very well-established old Delhi school where you, where they'd make networks for life and, you know, the chief minister's mm-hmm. grandchildren and whatnot, mm-hmm. but it didn't matter to me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, we didn't regret it. They loved the school that we moved them to. Mm-hmm. So when you were, you know, making these decisions and you're moving them from, you know, from you're moving from country to country and house to house and school to school, you probably broke every possible, you know, uh, um, conventional wisdom. Because I know in India, especially, you know, it's even before the child is born that you've already paid a donation to a school so that you're guaranteed admission. This was like, I mean, this is like brave you forget brave. I mean, it's like people probably looking at you as like, what is wrong with her? What did your, uh, um, I know your husband was a big, big support or was he also just as like, Oh my God, I don't know what my wife is up to now. And were your kids like, like, Oh Lord, please help us. Cause I have no idea what mom's thinking right now. What was the, what was going on at that time? So at the time that my son had to be moved, um, that perhaps was the first time, um, first and perhaps the last time my husband ever, um, disagreed with me over education or child raising. And I mean, it, that make, it makes it sound like I am the parent who takes more decisions where the children are concerned. And there's probably some truth to that because I have very strong ideas about certain things. Mm-hmm. There are things I don't care about at all. So, you know, when people ask me things like how much did the car cost or what's your house EMI, I look at them blankly and, and I come mm-hmm. across like that village woman who doesn't, who leaves mm-hmm. all these important mm-hmm. things to her husband. Uh-huh. But I, those things don't matter in the larger scheme of things to me. What mm-hmm. matters to me is my children, the way we live our lives, uh, the values we practice. And mm-hmm. uh, 
So, uh, so those are the decisions I make, and those are, or rather, those were the decisions I started fighting over and pushing my husband for in those early days. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, when my son got into that rather uh, Tony, you know, that uh, South Delhi school, mm-hmm. I said I didn't want to send him there. But you know, it was a kilometer from, away from home, and my husband said, "You're you're denying him a good education because of your prejudice against that school. Mm-hmm. Let him go there, and if you dislike it, we will, you know, we'll we'll. It's only kindergarten. We can." Mm-hmm. Shift him. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, and we let him go. And I swear to you, I've never regretted anything more than I regretted that. Mm-hmm. Uh, my son was perfectly okay, but you know, I'd go there every day, and there'd be these two-seater sports cars, and you know, a child would be brought in, her, his his or her mother driving, and then a maid would get off and walk him from the car door to the gate. And I could never understand why somebody who can drive her own car mm-hmm. cannot walk her child to the gate from said car to gate. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so that was the kind of school it was, and. You went to a party and you were expected to bring a couple of maids along with you, a, a birthday party. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you want, it, it was frowned upon to feed your own child mm-hmm. at the party. So mm-hmm. I have a three-year-old and a maid feeding and the mother's sitting around sipping Long Island iced teas. Mm-hmm. And I was so out of place over there. And, you know, I just kept suffering through it, saying it's all for a greater cause and a better education. But that, at that point, I was also reading up on education and realizing that this wasn't the education I wanted anyway. Mm-hmm. And that education is not just between you know the pages of a book it's 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 life and the life that these people were exposing him exposing my son to wasn't the life i wanted so at that point my husband and i had so many arguments and mm-hmm. and i'm putting this very politely <laughs> we had arguments <laughs> oh, <yes. laughs> i know how that goes <laughs> yeah yeah so we were like slamming doors and screaming that you know because he was like you know people have queued up for years to get into this school like your son just walked into it mm-hmm. you cannot throw this away mm-hmm. and I said I will and watch me throw it away because this is not what I want for our son mm-hmm. and uh, maybe I shouldn't have pushed so much it's, it's also my husband's son he had an equal say to it but you know how it is you fight right. and then whichever one is uh, probably holds a stronger opinion on it wins mm-hmm. and I, I clearly had the stronger opinion because he gave up and said you know what do what you want mm-hmm. and if the next school doesn't work out then be it on your head. And mm-hmm. I said, I'm willing to take this one, you know, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll take the blame for this one. And within maybe, we put our son into the new school and um, we fell in love when we walked into the school because there was just such a warm, inclusive environment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it wasn't aggressive. It was, it was just so simple. It was just so basic that the, it was all that we wanted for him. And um, my husband all said and done is a very, is a very honest, genuine, simple human being. Mm-hmm. And I think, that initial push to put my son in that school was largely influenced by how uh, our friends and our uh, our contemporaries in Delhi were were pushing us and encouraging us and telling us that you know that that is every child you know it, it was like the Ivy League equivalent mm-hmm. of kindergarten. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you know, everybody else said it was an amazing place. My husband hadn't put any thought into it, and, and frankly, even now he says I don't put any thought into these things. I go with what Smriti says because she has an instinct for this. She's raised our children amazingly. Mm-hmm. I like the decisions she makes. I like the way it. I like the way that shapes our life and I like what she's done and I like what the way it influences the children. So, you know, I've learned the hard way and, you know, now I go with what she says. Mm -hmm. So from there, after that, then um, there was another incident kind of, kind of um, made you realize that maybe you need to make another change, right? You were talking about your son and homework. So, you know, the school that we put them into that many years ago, um, I think it uh, fell prey to economic uh, Mm -hmm. pressures. There were parents who, uh, so, you know, the Delhi government changed its ruling. At, at one point, to put your children into that school, uh, you had to come and take a sort of a psychometric test. Mm-hmm. And the school would see whether you, um, whether you fit 
with their pedagogy and whether you uh, were the right fit for the school in terms of the way you thought and stuff. So and was it the parents? Was it the parents who had to take the test or the child who had to take the test? The parents. Oh, okay. Yeah. The school didn't test children in, by, you know, uh, in principle, they didn't believe in testing children. Okay. That was their principle. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, the government rulings changed everything. They said that, you know, children cannot be taken on this basis because, you know, there's a lot of room for corruption over there. Mm-hmm. So there has to be a lottery system. So before you knew it, there were a whole bunch of parents who didn't believe in this system at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. Who were there because, you know, the lottery system landed them there and they were as unhappy being there as we were unhappy having them. Mm-hmm. So, um, but unfortunately, there was a lot of pressure and they'd come to school and say, why aren't you giving the kids more homework? Uh, why aren't you disciplining the children more? And I could never get over this thing about a parent coming to school and telling the, telling the school that I want you to be harsh with my child. Why would you want anybody to be harsh with your child? Mm-hmm. Uh, and why would you imagine that anybody else can, ha- can manage your child or understand your child better than you can? Mm-hmm. And if you do, then, then there's some introspection for you to do there. Right. So anyhow, um, I noticed this, this change in the school's philosophy. And over a period of time, I noticed them becoming more and more mainstream, taking in more children so the class size was growing the student teacher ratio was falling Mm -hmm. and um, uh, you know they were testing children all the time and my son came into class nine last year Mm -hmm. and um, you know he was in school for two weeks before they came along and said you know there's a unit test tomorrow or something Mm -hmm. and they tested him all the way into the summer holidays Mm -hmm. and then the days the summer holidays opened they had an exam on this on the day that that, you know the school reopened which I found ridiculous because the child was completely unprepared for it Mm -hmm. And he failed that test. Mm-hmm. And um, and my son is a very good student and a very good boy. You know, one mm-hmm. of those very conscientious children who you have to drag away from right. their books. So um, so for him to fail was very deeply upsetting. You know, he wasn't one of those kids who said, oh, to hell with it. Mm-hmm. So um, I came back from work and I found uh, my son literally swatting at his books and it was raining. Mm-hmm. And I told him, why don't you go out and play in the rain for a bit? Mm-hmm. And um, he said, no, mama, I have an exam. And I said, when's your exam? And he said, next week. And I said, you know, this is a, it's a whole week away. He said, yeah, but you know, by the time I play and then I come back and I change and I get, I'll waste too much time. And I truly believe that playing football in the rain is one of life's um, important experiences, you know, one of those yes. unmissable ones. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, you have to go play football. And he said, no, I will not because I have a test to take. Mm-hmm. And um, I just, I don't know, something snapped. And I felt that as a parent, I have failed this child in many ways. If, if, if you know, my... Um, my telling him to go out and play is, is not as, uh, um, doesn't seem to have the impact that social pressure is, has on him. You know, mm-hmm. he's failed an exam. And he's so bothered by it that he, um, that he's not even allowing himself a small, you know, a, a, a half an hour break. Mm-hmm. And I realized that nothing I say as a parent, you know, go play. It doesn't matter, whatever. None of that was going to matter if the system that he was being raised in, you know, mm-hmm. our neighbors, our, his friends, the school, if, if society, told him that he had to be, you know, at his table, swatting at his books. It, mm-hmm. Nothing I said could uh, undo that. Mm-hmm. So I just told him, you're not going back to school tomorrow. And he said, why not? And I said, because that's it. I'm done with this exam business. And I really, I swear to you, Malini, I hadn't thought this through, mm-hmm. but this is how I live my life. <laughs> and uh, but I, I, I knew very clearly from a very, from deep inside that this mm-hmm. wasn't something I could, I, I didn't have a plan. But I didn't, again, like, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was very clear about what I was not going to do. And what I was not going to do is allow this child to spend the next four years of his life, you know, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, and then right. all through college. After that, you spend a lifetime uh, putting in hard work. And, and I believe in a hard work ethic, but you do, you do that 
at a certain point in life. You don't do right. it every time through your childhood because what childhood do you have left? Exactly. So I said, you know, you're quitting, you're quitting school tomorrow morning, and I'm going to find you a solution, and I'll mm-hmm. homeschool you after if mm-hmm. I have to. Mm-hmm. But you're not going back to the system. And he said, Mama, you have a business, and you go to work. <laughs> you run your own business. I said, Yes, that's fine. I will quit my business. I will shut it down. But I will, you know, my first responsibility is to the life I have brought mm-hmm. into this world. Mm-hmm. And uh, I will I will figure out what to do. So he called his father who was traveling on work. And he said, you know, mama has completely lost it. And she's not letting me go to school. She's not letting me study. <laughs> my husband called me back like completely tentative. And uh, they, he has an exam. And I mm-hmm. said, yes, I know. And I'm not letting him attend it. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, this is it. Uh, I can't bear to see these kids being forced to study these long hours, they have no free time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so literally, um, I was under pressure because since I'd come up with this grand plan of you're not going back to school, I had to figure out what the alternative was. Mm-hmm. And I found a lovely school. I had actually found it four or five years ago. It was based on the Krishnamurti philosophies. Mm-hmm. And um, it, uh, it was in the middle of a forest. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a 35 acre school in the middle of a 100 acre forest. I mean, it doesn't get better than that right. in the hills. Mm-hmm. And it was the British curriculum. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was a far more flexible curriculum than our Indian systems. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it was brilliant. I mean, they teach the children organic farming. They do an hour of farming every day. So you're out in the open. You're mm-hmm. using your body to do mm-hmm. everything that it was meant to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, uh, you're learning to grow your own food. And I really don't think there's anything more important than knowing how to feed yourself. Exactly. Uh, the kids have to cook. They have to clean. They have to tidy up their own rooms. They have to wipe down the mess tables after... Uh, you know, mm-hmm. after meals mm-hmm. and, um, and in between they study. Mm-hmm. So, so do they have access the to, do they have access to like technology or uh, do they have computers or is it like um, homeschooling kind of, and like, you know, the teachers are local. How, how does all of that work? Um, so they do have access to technology, but there's not very much emphasis on it. Any child, frankly, somebody who is very driven for and wants to do coding or, you know, get into um, mm-hmm. computer engineering or something perhaps could, Honestly, it would do perfectly well here too because they don't deny you that opportunity. The computer lab is there, but there's so much else going on that the children are constantly out and swimming in right. a river. There's a river that runs through the school and they're there. Mm-hmm. So the computer have access to the lab, but very mm-hmm. few children um, are interested in it. And I suppose children who are interested in it are encouraged to do it. And, and there's also a lot of um, uh, emphasis on practical science. The principal has like an old antique car. Mm-hmm. And I wish I could tell you which one it was, but I can't remember. Mm-hmm. And every year, the batch will take it all apart and put that entire car back together. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not just a, a lesson in a lab. They're playing right. over there. They're learning how to use uh, farm tools. They're learning how the school, if the school boiler packs up, they have to fix it. Mm-hmm. The school runs entirely on solar power. So the children... If, if a panel, if a solar panel isn't working, the children have to climb up on the roof and fix it. Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, they, they must just... be so, they must be so happy, right? I can just, I mean, I, I can just imagine that too. It's like being out in nature, learning how to live with your hands and learning to be independent, which is something that the current system, in, I think in most countries do not teach you. I think, and that's absolutely phenomenal. Yes. There's a lot of trust in this school. Uh, that river that runs through the school perhaps is the first uh, sign of what they expect of a child because um, there's nobody watching that river. There's no uh, lifeguard there. Mm-hmm. And it's a swift river with uh, rocks and uh, there's a bridge over it and the, the boys' hostels are on the other side of that river. Mm-hmm. And the children walk through in the night in the dark mm-hmm. and they don't take children below the age of eight or nine to stay in the hostel for the simple reason that they said, we don't follow your children around. We're trusting them. Right. 
and um, you know so that is that is what i said about the education about education being um, how you live your life frankly mm-hmm. so if at by the age of 9 you are entrusted with your own safety mm-hmm. that's a huge thing these kids are climbing trees using farm equipment where they could lose a limb mm-hmm. um working with electricity when they are fixing say if, this, if you know a particular hostel loses electricity the kids are up there on that pole fixing it mm-hmm. um so they have to maintain all the precautions that anybody else would and they are young boys doing it and like, the biogas plant needs to be fixed and and they are hu- dealing with human waste in that case mm-hmm. and and they're doing it so there's those are i mean they're learning they're learning physics and chemistry and maths while fixing it yes but they're also learning about life that if i don't get this fixed in time we don't have uh, lights to read in our hostel at night yeah and i think and i think that's really that's really amazing because i think you, um your kids because they've seen the other side of it right where they where they're uh, they're entitled pampered kind of thing and here you come here and you have to start using your brain it's not like you have to open a book and mug it up because here you're actually getting to learn the concepts and use it So what has your kids reaction been to the school? So um so the day I told my kids we're moving here you should have their faces <laughs> fit to see you know they they both went gray I mean there they were these uh, uh, gated community gurgaon to be fair we've always lived very very um honest real lives my husband and me we keep it real as far as possible mm-hmm. so you know so so it wasn't that they it wasn't that our kids were spoiled but um even so to tell them that we're sending you off down south mm-hmm. to a small hill station in in Tamil Nadu that you have never heard of in your life uh, so my husband and i decided my husband was actually moving back from dubai last year and he said you know you can't send them off to boarding i've not spent i've been away from them for the last 4 years only meeting them you know a couple of days every week mm-hmm. and just as an just as i move back to india you send them off to hostel so like mm-hmm. i said you know i i i I'm, my business isn't working out the way i thought it would we hit a couple of um, obstacles along the way and uh, it just seemed it wasn't you know economically feasible at that point mm-hmm. so i said i plan to shut down my business so why don't we take this one year because um, my husband too had uh, a one year window mm-hmm. of flexibility before some certain things changed at his workplace mm-hmm. so i said we both have this year it's, it's it's providential that we should both be here at this time um just when the kids are ready to move to hostel so let's move to the hills with them i've always wanted to live in the hills mm-hmm. and um, let's go there and uh, spend the first year with the children and let them get used to hostel because we are we are very close knit and mm-hmm. you know when you don't come from a particular culture or community then your family tends to be more close knit than ever yeah because you don't have that community thing to fall back on so you are your own community mm-hmm. you know in the whole world my children will not find any other community that or any other child who is konkani tamil bengali garhwali with a little bit of chinese mm-hmm. it's not going to happen <laughs> right. so um so you know we didn't want to be split up so we moved to the hills with them mm-hmm. i think that made it hugely easy because we, what we decided is that they'd be week boarders so you know they'd be there for the entire week and come home to us on the weekend mm-hmm. so they'd get the proper boarding school experience of you know being there at night and your midnight feasts and mm-hmm. um you know and plus being the kind of school it is there's a certain amount of work that goes into school um after your studies are over so you're cleaning up your um your composting your mm-hmm. washing out the toilets all of these things are done before and after school hours so mm-hmm. if they were just day boarders they'd never get to pull their share of weight and i didn't think it was fair to the other children right. that mine should leave at 5 and come home when they start working you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so um so we did that uh i think that made it much easier for the kids and by the third weekend when we went to pick them up they were literally tossing a coin saying you go home with them you go home with them i'm not <laughs> going home 
<laughs> one of us needs to go home to keep our parents happy and it's not me and um, you know heartbreaking as that was um, it, it was it was so that again was a validation of you know the fact that this school was really working for the kind of people they are and mm-hmm. these kids who had come from a gated complex were running wild climbing trees my children have stopped wearing shoes mm-hmm. um, they um, they are comfortable out in the cold they have leeches climbing mm-hmm. up their legs and they don't bother with them mm-hmm. when i tell my son there's a leech on your leg leg he says mama it's a cycle of nature he needs to eat off feed off me so just let him be <laughs> Oh, I can just imagine a city kid seeing that and freaking out, right? <laughs> that is so cool, though. I think so. That kind of that kind of um, like you said validates the fact that you know education is not about taking tests and you know the the scores and everything, and they'll figure it out later in life because they've already they they're so comfortable in their own skin and learning how to survive. You you you're not worried about them later on because they'll figure it out, right? You know, this um, uh, thing that you said about taking tests, uh, the reason I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but no, um, we, we left mainstream schooling because of this testing business. Mm-hmm. And we reached this school, um, you know, I put in my application and within a, a, this, with the day the school got back to me, I mailed them and they said, when can you come in for a test? I said, I'll come there tomorrow morning. And they said that we actually checked your application to see where you were coming from and how you could possibly get here in less than 20 hours. Mm-hmm. And um, we reached there and they gave the children a maths test. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they gave me the, came and gave me the sheets, one of the teachers and said, you know, the children need to sit down and take this test. So I sent my son, to, you know, I, I did it very ethically. I sent my son to one corner of, of mm-hmm. an auditorium and my daughter to sit under a tree and I said, go and take the test. And, you know, in a bit, my son solved his test and came back and my daughter came back without one single maths question done and I said what's wrong and she said I I can't understand even even a single question so I just I hadn't even looked at the paper because you know I was doing the right thing Mm. so I said show it to me and I looked at it and it was really above you know what a seven child in class seven should know Uh and then my son looked at it and he said it's the same paper that I have you know it's 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 much more than you know it's much higher than the level that she should be at because Mm. he's in class nine Mm. and uh, so you know I took it back to the maths teacher and I said I think there's been a mistake because you've given both of them the same paper whereas she's applied for class seven and he's applying for class nine mm-hmm. and um, he said that you know um, we that was a deliberate uh, this thing not a mistake we wanted him to sit with her and um, we wanted him to help her through the paper oh. and um, we wanted him to explain to her the things that she didn't understand mm-hmm. we obviously don't know which level she's at but if he could explain something of that to her it would be a better test of his ability than his own test Wow. And that, that just shocked me because I'd never seen anybody being tested. And they said, we expected them to sit together and do it. Why did you split them up? <laughs> it's like, that is okay. different. That is different. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So um, anyhow, my daughter then went and sat with the maths teacher and apparently he did maths puzzles with her because my husband and I were waiting outside chewing our nails to the stuff that, you know, now there's another paper she's going to have to take. Mm-hmm. And we could hear her laughing and gurgling. And when she came out, she said, we did so many maths puzzles and games. And he tested her through those. And she said, I'm never going back because I've never been able, to, I've never enjoyed maths the way I have during this test. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it, it really, um, it worked out beautifully. We, my, my kids approach education very differently now, very differently. 
That is, that is, that is really awesome. And I, and I'm sure there are lots of other people who'll be listening to this and be like, wow, we need to sign up for this because this is amazing. Especially I know a lot of moms are so frustrated with the, the education system and, you know, they're so worried about like the 10th exam board exams and the 12th board exams and where they get in engineering and, you know, you know how all of that goes. So I think this is this is a real breath of fresh air that there, there is actually a way out of this. this. You don't have to follow the conventional system. There is a way to do this. So I think that's so really you know cool. this. Yeah, you don't. This year because of Corona, mm-hmm. um, you know all the other schools are going online with Zoom and this and that. Mm-hmm. And uh, my kids' school, they're still. I mean, this is still all up in the air. So I I don't even know if it's right for me to share it with you. But they're saying we're probably going to run this as a zero year. We don't know how many kids will come back. So if the kids do come back. Mm-hmm. We don't plan to educate them uh, in conventional subjects, mm-hmm. um, swim, paint, mm-hmm. um, cook, mm-hmm. and learn life skills. Because in the middle of a pandemic, the thing that's most important is your emotional well-being, not what you're scoring. Wow. And um, my son is in class 10. He should mm-hmm. be taking his, uh, and according to the IGCSE system, one of the papers that he's meant to take will be in November. So, you know, he would start in August, mm-hmm. the regular session. Mm-hmm. And he'd have to take his first exam in November. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, because we've checked out of the regular system, I have absolutely no concern. I asked my son, I said, do you want to take class 10 this year or next year? He said, whatever you think. And I said, no, you go to school, see how you feel about it. Mm-hmm. If you're not ready to take it, this they're right. This is a pandemic year. We're all learning to live with a new normal. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if we should call this normal. Right. Um, so let's, you know, so do what what makes you comfortable and what makes you emotionally stable? Mm-hmm. This is not the time for anybody to be getting, uh, you know, worked up over, 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 uh, you know, a board exam. Right. I mean, and like you said, it's a new normal. It's, you can't even say it's like in one country because it's literally worldwide. Everywhere you go, you're going to be hearing that story. So I think the way the school is approaching it is itself is like phenomenal. They've just taken the bull by the horns, looking the facts in the face and saying, you know what? This is how it's going to be, and this is how we're going to go forward. And I think that is a tremendous um, step that they've taken, just to keep the calm, right? So it's like it's okay, it's okay. Yeah. You, you know, we'll just figure it out, right? And um, the amazing thing is, um, so they, the school was originally set up for uh, farm labor in the area. Mm-hmm. So my kids still have uh, children coming to class with them whose parents are labor. Okay. On the farm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they, they, these kids are going to be taking the IGCSC. They're going to be taking the Cambridge board. Right. And um, obviously they need a lot more support than our kids do. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they don't have the privilege that our kids are, uh, you know, born to. Mm-hmm. So my daughter who's 13 has a 17 year old in her class and, and it doesn't matter. He might be in class seven, but he is in class seven in the Cambridge board. Right. He, he's getting a British education that very few other kids in this country are getting. And so he's four years behind and it doesn't really matter. But what he's learning is solid and it's hard for. Yeah. And um, I, I don't know if you will want to keep this in your, um, in the show or not, in the podcast or not. But I'd like to share a small thing with you. Sure. One of the um, earliest classes that my children had to do mm-hmm. was an understanding of privilege. Okay. And you know how to check your own privilege. Mm-hmm. And uh, in India, you hear very often that there's been a famine in a certain part of the country, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, and a farmer committed suicide. 100 mm-hmm. farmer suicides this year. You know, they're just statistics. Mm-hmm. We just, they're just numbers to us. 100 farmers killed themselves this mm-hmm. year mm-hmm. because, you know, of debt and because of a famine and whatever. Or you, 
some once in a while you'll hear this really heartbreaking story of a farmer having to sell his daughter because he didn't make enough money that year mm-hmm. and um, and we judge them and you know parents like us say how could you no matter how bad your situation how could you possibly sell your child mm-hmm. um, so my kids were given a lesson by their teacher that you know okay so this is a village you are a you're a farmer you're a teacher you're a cobbler mm-hmm. um, you're the village headman mm-hmm. um, you know whatever they were each given a role and they were each given money according to that so you have this much money you have this much money you have this much money then they describe the village you're on the banks of a river mm-hmm. This year, there's been a famine. The rivers dried up. So tell me how that affects your finances. So mm-hmm. each one had to tell, had to create a story about how that would affect their finances. Mm-hmm. Then he said, "Okay, um, so now this at the end of the year, you have X amount of money. Mm-hmm. Now the next year, there is a flood. Mm-hmm. So so and so, so and so, and so and so will do really well. The fishermen will do well, and so and so will do well. But X and Y, uh, their houses will get carried away in the in the flood." Mm-hmm. How does that affect your finances? So mm-hmm. they did this over a period of five, you know, they went mm-hmm. through a cycle of five years. And at the end of it, um, the Dalit who they had, you know, the person who was playing the role of the Dalit in that village, mm-hmm. uh, that guy was at a point where he said, okay, I'll sell my daughter if I have to. Wow. Because I have to feed the other children. Mm-hmm. He had six children according to the life, the family history or whatever the right. life history that created for him, the little story that had been cooked up. Mm-hmm. And he had a little baby who needed to be fed. And he said, okay, I'll sell the eldest child into bonded labor or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know what his understanding of selling the eldest child was, mm-hmm. but he was willing to do that. And, you know, it made our children understand the, sub, the you know, otherwise it's all just textbook. Right. You, know, you read about it, you read it in the news, you judge people for the way they are living their lives and, and the way poverty affects them. But this really hit home. So yeah, this is, these are some of the things they learn at school. Yeah. In fact, when you think about it, a lot of, you know, like you were saying, whether they're, you, um, one, you know, one is 11, 12 and the other is 17. When you go out into the workforce, you end up working with people of all different ages. It doesn't matter when they graduated and, you know, how old they are. Because a lot of times nowadays you find it's the younger people who are probably the, at a higher position and the older people who are not. So, you know, you know your school is basically a reflection of life and how you learn. It's a question of, you know, your attitude and and the skills that you have, right? So I think I think your kids are getting a phenomenal, an absolutely phenomenal education, an amazing experience. So, I hope so. yeah, so you're, you know, so you, all your, um, you, you know, doing the unpopular uh, thing and g- getting out of the mainstream and doing in the at the end of the day, I think it's it all kind of comes together and you know gives them the kind of education that they need. So, so good job. That's awesome. But you are also now you're trying to figure out what to do, right? <laughs> you know, um, that's the thing. I mean, uh, while we were trying to figure out their lives and, um, you know, we, things fell into place for my husband and me in the sense that uh, we, our intention had been to live here for about a year, let the kids settle into hostel and then we'd head back to the big city. And my husband's job was only flexible for this year. From this year, he, you know, from June, he was to have moved into a sort of client facing role that would have required him to be. Um, you know, meeting businesses all the time in big mm-hmm. cities and traveling abroad and stuff. In fact, we were moving out of the country this year. Mm-hmm. But because of Corona, all those plans have changed. Mm-hmm. We have been locked down in a small town in the hills for the last, um, you know, for the last four months. Mm-hmm. And it's been just brilliant because until now, we've never really, you know, we was, we used this place as a base and my husband was flying out for work and I was going back to Delhi for pitching for projects and, you know, editing from here and that sort of thing. But somewhere around January or February, I realized that I didn't have the heart to leave the school. So I started teaching at my children's school. 
Awesome. On a voluntary basis. So I teach the 11s and 12s. Mm-hmm. I teach them English literature. And, uh, and I really enjoy it. I mean, I keep telling my husband that I walk into school and there's this warmth that, that sort of um, envelops me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't feel like leaving at the end of the day. The kids come and hug me. And they, mm-hmm. these are all grown girls. And you don't find affection like that coming from teenagers who are 17 and 18. And these girls come and hug me mm-hmm. and refuse to let me leave at the end of the day. Auntie, don't leave yet. Auntie, don't leave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, you, it, it's a completely different kind of school where your students don't want you to leave at the end of a day. And um, that, 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 so the moment that started happening, I told my husband, I don't know how we're going to leave. And my husband started relooking at his work and saying, you know what, I'm going to try and figure out a way that we can continue to work out of here. Uh-huh. And then of course, Corona happened. So we're all, we've all pressed the pause button on that. Right. But um, while, sorry. No, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Okay. I thought you said something. So yeah, we've, um, so we've decided to sort of make this our base for the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. And um, at least as long as our daughter is here, which is, uh, so she's going into class eight in August. So another, yeah, another five years for her. Okay. So we said, let's at least try and see if again, I can stay here with the children and my husband can, um, you know, commute from here. Mm-hmm. It's, it's absolutely amazing. We've, uh, we haven't suffered with the usual big city problems that, uh, that, you know, Corona has brought, you know, there's, there's no one to pick up an infection from where we're down a deserted road. Mm-hmm. We go for long long walks in the forest um absolutely fresh vegetables and they grow a lot of unusual stuff like kale and chinese cabbage and Mm -hmm. asparagus and stuff over here that again you wouldn't get Mm -hmm. at a big city you'd get it at a different cost we've we've found that we're eating healthier we're living healthier we're living slower we're living a more examined life we're living a more um a slower life yeah that's Mm -hmm. what we're doing it's and it's really working for us as a family it's working um, for our health, emotional and physical. So we, we are trying to make this our base for the time being. Mm-hmm. Looking at your wild and crazy journey that you've had so far, I mean, you've got, you know, the, the, so many things just, just kind of fell into place, some things that you had to fight for. Is there anything that you would have changed or you would have told your younger self that you should, you should have done better? You know, so if you had to go back and change something, would you have? Um. If there's anything I tell my younger self, it would be to belt up and get some coffee. <laughs> uh, yeah, because I, yeah, my younger self really needs to wear a seat belt and prepare for this. But, um, but I think I want my younger self to know that it's going to be okay. And even as I say it now, I realize that perhaps I should think of it now because every day, especially in the middle of a pandemic, we worry. There, there mm-hmm. is always something to worry about and there is always fear. Uh, and perhaps this is the first time in my life that I've actually feared the future, you know, ah, it, it, otherwise okay. it's always seemed like one big grand adventure. But, you know, if I can tell my younger self to, to that it's all going to be okay, I guess I can tell my current self also that it's all going to be okay. Um, I don't think I have changed anything. I think I, my life's worked out the way it should have. Mm-hmm. I am where I am when I was supposed to be. That's awesome. That's really cool. So I have one last question for you. So you've always, you have always spoken your truth. I think it is the, you know, I think it's the impact that your parents have, your, your strong women in your family have had and just the kind of upbringing you've had. And now you're raising a son and a daughter and they're watching you, right? And they're seeing how you live your life and how you speak your truth. So what would you want them to learn from you? Or have they told you something that has surprised you and you've realized that, okay, you're doing okay? 
Um, I think uh, I think I'll disagree a little. I, I people often say that you've raised your kids very well, but I always say my kids have raised themselves. I feel I've I've, I've lived my life as as a as as a partner with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've grown as a parent along with them, and I don't mean this in in any. Uh, in, in any very wise, you know, mm-hmm. this is not Gyan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really feel like my kids have raised themselves and I think at some level they've raised me. Um, my kids are very calm, wise souls. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, so there are times I feel that they parent my husband and me more than we parent them. And in, in very gentle, calm, compassionate ways, very often I take my cue from them. I find that I'm losing my temper. I'm doing something that I shouldn't have done. Mm-hmm. And then I see how much better they are handling a particular situation. And I'm ashamed of myself and I, and I try and do better mm-hmm. because, because I'm learning from them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the other day, my daughter, um, so I, I, I am a published author too. And my, my daughter was reading a couple of my, uh, some of the stuff I've written online. She's old enough now. She goes online. She does a Google search for my name. She reads stuff mm-hmm. that I've written. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things she noticed was that in, at the end of every piece in my bio, I've written, I'm a mother and I'm whatever, whatever. And she said, mm-hmm. mama, why do you always mention that you're a mother? Mm-hmm. She says that, um, do you know that Hillary Clinton's bio on, um, online at one point said wife and Bill Clinton said founder. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she said that, uh, so, you know, surely you could have done better than that mama. <laughs> and she said, I want you, if you can, you need to call up all these people and tell them to change the bio on these articles and remove mother from it. I said, you know, I can't, cannot deny the fact that I am a mother. But she said, yeah, but you'll never find a male writer writing that. Right. They never say their so, father, right? Yeah, never say yeah. that. It's, you know, their family just exists in the background, but I am defined by my family. My children have shaped me. Mm-hmm. I, I always say that I've had the courage to do the things I've done because every day I'd wake up and I'd ask myself, do I deserve, do I deserve these children? Mm-hmm. Have I done today something that makes me worthy of them? Have I done what would make them proud of me? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, most other people tend to get risk averse with children. You know, you're, you're more cautious about your money and about your career decisions and all that. But with, uh, with the kids, I've always, I've, it, it had the opposite effect on me. You know, mm-hmm. um, it kind of galvanized me into becoming a more, uh, um, a person who takes more chances perhaps because I just felt that, um, that I want them to learn from me that um, change isn't something to be scared of. Mm-hmm. And that if, if you're, if you are on a path, you, you're, you're not a tree, you know, mm-hmm. you don't, you haven't put down roots. You can pick yourself up and get off it mm-hmm. wherever you find at any point in life that this is not working for me. There are so many people who live their lives in utter misery mm-hmm. because, you know, we've always been like this or how can I disrupt a system or, mm-hmm. or how, can, how can I smash the patriarchy or how can I upset the apple cart? But, you know, I, I'll, I will happily upset the apple cart and smash the patriarchy and do whatever it takes to make my kids happy and, and, and to give them the strength that they would need to be happy. That is really cool. Say, um, I'm sure you, um, I, I would, I would really love to hear your kids reaction after they listen to this podcast. <laughs> so I want to know what they have to say. <laughs> oh, they know all of this. I mean, I, I have a series on Facebook. I run, I run a, a series of Abhiisms and amniisms, the things that my children say, uh-huh. because they say amazingly, um, sometimes very wild things and sometimes very wise things. Uh-huh. Um, you know, uh, the other day I was, uh, I was, uh, what is the, I was, uh, I was making a video of a cloud on time lapse. There was uh-huh. a cloud moving across our cottage uh-huh. on the hilltop that we are on, and the cloud wouldn't move fast enough for my time lapse to look good. <laughs> and I'm muttering I'm like move faster move faster and then my son came and he just put a hand on my back 
and he said mama it's a cloud it needs to do what it needs to do <laughs> wow thanks so you know uh, so yeah they they like these calm wise souls and um, and yeah they're doing a fairly good job of raising me that is awesome but thank you smriti i really appreciate your taking the time to talk about your um wild and crazy journey and i'm sure a lot of other people would be um inspired by listening to this that it's okay you know change is the only thing that's constant and there's nothing to fear thanks thanks so much malini for having me i i hope people do find it inspiring um i'm not sure they will but i'll be very happy to hear that they did okay thank you for listening and don't forget to subscribe and if you love the show please leave a review just remember you could be one story away from being inspired